2: The following programme was first broadcast on FNR Digital Radio on Sunday, September 13th, 2015. For more information, visit www.unresolvedshow.co.uk.
3: Previously on Unresolved. Remember she said that the whole night was a bit of a dud, Um, that he seemed not to be in the room,
4: vacant, you know. Then he turns up and he starts stalking her. Totally out of the blue. Je- J- James. I- Fuck off. Fuck off. Leave me alone. James, no good.
3: So you think that's James?
2: Yeah, that's James's voice.
3: With what level of confidence?
5: You know, this isn't my first time hearing this, right? Well, it's just that the date on the tape doesn't match up with the date
4: by which Logan should already have been dead. I know. And it's problematic. But it's more problematic than you might think, truth be told. Um, why is that? Because James Logan actually returned to London again a year later.
3: My name's Zoe Drew from FNR and this is Unresolved, a real-life murder investigation told piece by piece. This time, is there ever smoke without fire? We're going to take a deeper look into the life and obsessions of Maggie Hollis, including her time spent poring over the actions of James Logan, the relationship he and his father had to hers, and asking ourselves, honestly, did she do it? Did she murder James Logan? You know in movies how whenever somebody coughs, you just know that they'll be dead by the time the credits roll? That cough, with or without the cliched close up on a hanky full of spattered blood, is a warning sign. It's a signpost to the audience. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Because when I step back and look at everything I know so far about this case, that's what I see warning signs. I see the odd behaviour and the spotty testimony and the eccentricities of Maggie Hollis. They're all warning signs. But are they enough to override my gut feeling that there's more going on here than what's in the record books? I'm still not sure. I think, first of all, it's worth reiterating a few things, just so we're on the same page. 1. On October 3rd, 2005, Maggie Hollis killed Laura Ray, seemingly accidentally, by hitting her with her car. That much is fact. 2. Laura was for reasons nobody knows, not far from James Logan's house. 3. When the police descended on the scene, they found Maggie inside James's house, in close proximity to his dead body. 4. The body. Confirmed as being James Logan... ...had been decaying for several years... ...and he had been murdered... ...rather than dying of natural causes. And five? Maggie's side of the story... ...which we'll dive into next time... ...which she believes... ...absolves her of James's murder. But before we open that can of worms... ...there's something else we need to do... ...and that's explore how James and Maggie were linked... ...because, to be honest... It's probably the most fascinating thing about the whole story. And to do that, I had to go back to Hampton Hospital.
4: Well, this must be costing you a fortune coming here over and over. I've not had this much visitation in years.
3: That's Maggie. We're speaking inside Dr. Edward's office this time. It's the third time I've seen her in person and the fourth time total that I've had contact with her. But every time was short and to the point and over before I really knew what had happened. This time, with the good doctor's permission, I wanted to try and squeeze a bit more blood from that impenetrable stone. I had more background now, more information. I wanted to speak to her for more than just a few minutes, not least because she was right. It was costing me a fortune in money and time but more because I thought I now had some of the right questions and more inclination to ask them than I think anyone else had in a long time. Can I ask you a really frank, straightforward question first? Please. Okay. So, do you understand that everybody believes that you murdered James Logan? Yes. And what do you think about that?
4: Well, not much anymore, to be honest. A lot of people also believe that they're going to win the lottery. Or that... or that... or that democracy works, for instance. Okay.
3: Um, what about your father? Hmm? I... I said, what about your father? What about him? Well, what... what can you tell me about the link between your father and James Logan?
4: We've been over this, haven't we, Miss Drew?
3: In so much as you told me you believe that Philip Logan, James's father, killed your
4: father. Well, that's not exactly what I said, though, is it? I said it's hard to tell. I said it's unclear.
3: Maggie's right. She did say that. The last time I brought up her father, she said the details were murky. But this time, I had done my research. I knew a bit more. I had listened to Maggie's old tapes. So I knew she was still holding back information. Maybe it was because she's tired. Tired of telling people what she thinks is true, only to be told she's crazy. Maybe she's just older now, and less inclined to speak about her past. Hell, maybe. She just doesn't like me. But whatever the case, I knew it was time to apply a bit more pressure. Am I right in saying that your father abandoned you as a baby? This sounds harsh, I know. But I wanted Maggie to bite.
4: Well, I'm not sure if abandoned is the right turn of phrase, really. My mother died during childbirth, which I think was my way of setting precedent somehow. Anyway, my father had to go to war, so he left me with his parents. He died in the war, of course. But I wouldn't say that he abandoned me, no. He was just doing his duty.
3: Okay, time to take a trip back to the 30s and 40s. Prior to the Second World War, Sean Hollis had been a baker living in Hemel Hempstead. He had a young wife named Rachel, and he lived a normal, quiet, uneventful life. I know this because there's next to no information about him other than those few facts prior to the events that took place in the war. But actually, it's just before the war that things get interesting. Sean and Rachel Hollis had a daughter in 1938, Maggie, a full year before World War II started. And I guess, really, that's where our timeline should begin. August 18th, 1938, the day Maggie Hollis came kicking and screaming into the world. Do you know what happened during your birth? To your
4: mother, I mean. Complications, that's all I know. Hypotension, maybe. All that really matters, Miss Drew, is that, you know, I made it and she didn't. And so your father died in the war
3: in confusing circumstances, would you say? Well, you could say that,
4: yes. Can you explain how? Well, if I could do that, we'd not be sat here, would we?
3: Maggie was closing up yet again here, so I decided to tell her what I knew, in the hopes that she might take over. (laughs) As... I understand it. You, you think? I mean, you think there was some foul play at hand that James Logan's father killed yours and somehow got away with it? Sorry, can
2: I? Can I just have a quick word?
3: Damn. At this point, Doctor Edwards asked that I stop recording and pulled me outside. There, while still carefully keeping an eye on his patient through the doorframe, he asked me in whispers where my questions were going. He said he didn't feel that what I was doing was particularly healthy for Maggie, that it was counterintuitive to her treatment. I sensed that he thought me a nuisance from day one. And in the hallway, he made it pretty over. He wanted me to shut things down. So I told him I'd stop.
2: Sorry about before. It's just I don't think it's massively helpful for Maggie uh, to to retread too much of what got her here.
3: This was back in his office, about an hour later. Maggie and I had chatted a little bit after he torpedoed my questioning, but none of it was what you'd call pertinent. I felt a bit snookered by the rules. So we chatted about the hospital and about her views on the law and some general stuff. And then my time with her was up for another session. I didn't, however, want to waste my trip. So I decided to get some time with Dr. Edwards to see if he'd give up a bit more info himself.
2: I think the main thing to remember about obsessive behaviour is that um, it doesn't ever get better if you do anything, anything at all to reinforce it. Oh,
3: that's not what I was trying to do. I just, I just want to get to the bottom of things, you know?
2: Oh, I I understand. I get it. I do. Uh, I worry though, with respect, that you've fallen victim to something that a lot of people in this field have to be wary of—getting um, getting get, getting too attached to the testimony of people who are quite mentally unwell. It's easy to do, you know. I know, but we can't really let anyone get too engrossed in fake stories. That's fair.
3: And it was fair. I had, after all, burst in on this guy. This professional with a bunch of silly questions about events that happened 10, 15, 60 years ago and I'd been asking someone accused of murder to I guess explain their way out of it even though I know they have a catalogue of mental illnesses. So I mean I know you have confidentiality issues here but what can you tell me about Maggie's history with her father?
2: Honestly very little. I'm afraid that confidentiality means that, um, well, it it means, it means confidentiality in this case, you know?
5: So, obsession, or obsessive behaviour, comes in lots of different flavours, really.
3: That's Dr Emma Collins, a psychologist at Royal London Hospital. Emma's an old friend, so I decided to see what I could learn from her about what Maggie might be going through and why it might affect her take on things.
5: And the thing is that while you often hear people say, oh, I'm so OCD, because they like to have things lined up nicely on their desk or whatever, that really isn't what we mean when we think about obsessive compulsive disorders.
3: You mean because the symptoms are worse than that?
5: I mean, yes and no. Wanting things neat and tidy is certainly a symptom, but that's one of dozens and dozens and they come under four main brackets. So those would be checking, uh, contamination, hoarding, and ruminations, which in simple terms is either obsessively checking on things in the house or things that build into your routine, cleaning over and over again, um, either your home or your body, for example being unable to let go of objects, or even clinging to intrusive thoughts about different scenarios.
3: And that last one is rumination.
5: Rumination, yeah. I mean, that in itself is actually quite a broad umbrella term. So you can have ruminations ongoing that revolve around intrusive thoughts about harming yourself or even a loved one. Or ruminations that go on and on about philosophical questions or events from the past it's really different from obsessive worry in that that's more of an anxiety-based symptom rumination is pure and basic obsessive thinking is that what you think your patient has
3: amongst other things yeah Uh, so I mean what's the prognosis how
5: how, how does it all work really tricky. This kind of prolonged thinking is really difficult to break out of. If you're preoccupied with events that have happened in the past you're unlikely to reach a satisfactory conclusion. It's not as if you can change the past and actually obsessive thinking limits your ability to problem solve.
3: Right, yeah. So there's nothing to be done?
5: So we'd usually try and look at cognitive behavioural therapy. You can't just tell an obsessed mind not to obsess about something. In fact, if you're prone to obsessive brain patterns, trying to stop it by brute force only actually makes it worse. It's holistic at the end of the day, patient by patient. Mostly though, I'd say it's a game of trying to gently dislodge whatever misconception it is that they're focused on and keep them clear of triggers, you know, like a a place or a, a person or something that sets off compulsive thinking.
3: With that insight, it's not hard to see why Dr Edwards probably isn't my biggest fan. But I've got a confession. As much as I'd love to have heard it straight from one of them, it doesn't exactly matter that my talk with Maggie and Dr Edwards didn't come to much. The reason? I have her tapes. I have hours and hours of her inner monologue recorded and catalogued. And since I'd done nothing but pore over them for days, I, well, I found a few things.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello fresh.
4: on all 6,570 days exactly. I
3: know what you're thinking. And yeah, I think Maggie's drunk here. There are a few tapes like this where you can tell she may have had a couple of drinks because there's less purpose to the recordings. They amble from one thing to the next, and she's bizarrely candid about some personal things. This one, though, on the 19th of December, 2002, a few months after Laura and Tom asked her to track James down and Maggie purportedly ran into him on his doorstep, is a real find. The whole entry is some 20 minutes long and quite rambly. But at around the 15-minute mark, she says this. Logan.
4: He killed my father. No doubt. No doubt about that. I just, just don't know which Logan. And
3: now we get down to it. Maggie's idea that the then 30-year-old James Logan was somehow involved in the death of her father. Confused? You're not alone. To get some clarity, we need to go over the official cause of death for Maggie's father, Captain Sean Hollis. was a pilot, stationed in Libya, Egypt, Iran, a whole host of places around North Africa. He moved around a lot. But, as mentioned, there's not much about him beyond where he went and where he flew. And pretty importantly to our case, who he flew with. See, Sean primarily flew a type of plane called a Vickers Valentia, which was a two-man aircraft.
6: It's the type 264 you're talking about here. That's a bit different from the original, but even so, the Type 264 was already a pretty outdated machine by the time the war even started. Uh, You know, a bit of an old one, really.
3: This is Francis Brown, a military aircraft enthusiast. Francis runs a fan website about the Vickers line, so he's the man in the know here.
6: So they were first put to work within the RAF in 1932, mostly as transports. Sometimes for bombing runs, once the Second World War started.
3: And th- this was in Africa?
6: Broadly, yeah. The West African campaign, uh, Iraq, Libya, you know, that sort of space. But there weren't that many of them. And what few there were, well, a lot of them were being replaced by newer aircrafts. The Vickers Victoria, for instance.
3: Sure. So could you... Uh... I mean, could you just explain what these planes were like? Um, were they big, small, slow,
4: fast?
6: Oh, slow. Really slow. And they were big aircrafts. So bear in mind, they would either be full of people or supplies. Uh, they weren't fighters. If your listeners want to picture it, it's like a very large 2 prop biplane, big enough for 22 people.
3: But they were used... For bombing, you said?
6: Yeah. yeah. In some cases, they'll be fitted with bomb racks, 2,000-pound bomb racks under the wings. And actually, their speed was the reason for this. So the Valentia had a top speed of uh, 120 or 130. That's max speed, which was nice and slow enough to be accurate. Also, because it was slower than the more modern fighters, which might attack back, if you're very slow, you're actually quite hard to hit.
3: Yeah. And you said to me over email that these planes needed two pilots?
6: Two pilots, that's right. The cockpit was quite terrifying by today's standards. It was very compact and open top. So you'd have these two guys sitting very tightly in this small open air box. It would have been incredibly loud and hosy.
3: So with that in mind, I think it's safe to say that if you're part of the two-man crew of a Vickers Valencia you're going to need to be pretty tight. Which means, I guess, that Sean Hollis and Philip Logan must have been friends. Why is that potential friendship important? I mean, besides the fact that it's kind of crazy how all this James, Maggie, Laura, Sean and Philip fits together, it's important because... I'm trying to get myself into the mindset of these two guys as they set off for their first and last proper mission. We're moving far away from things that Maggie's trial covered now, but stick with me. World War II is important when it comes to figuring out why Maggie is the way she is.
4: Bombing raid over Libya. We know it was a bombing raid. We know they weren't shot down. We know this. No bullet holes on the wreckage. But then what? Eh? Then what, James?
3: Maggie again, on the same drunken recording. And what she's saying there is ostensibly true. Philip Logan and Sean Hollis flew only one active war mission together during their time in 70 Squadron. For the rest of their career, in the Vickers, they were cargo pilots. They'd ferry people or things from base to base. But on the early evening of September 16th, 1941, they flew a real-life raid out of Libya. The plane was fitted with a payload and they dropped it on the gathering of Italian aircraft parked stupidly close together a landing strip about a hundred miles to the northeast. That mission was a success on the surface, but their plane ended up crashing in the middle of the desert in the middle of the night on the return journey. What happened there is a mystery to all concerned, Maggie included, even if she does have her theories. What we do know, however, is that the plane wasn't shot down, as she correctly asserts. We know that Sean Hollis died and Philip Logan survived the crash. And we also know that the plane wasn't found for a long time. Years, in fact. And this is where it gets really crazy. Did James ever mention his father? Did you ever meet him?
2: I didn't meet him, no. James hadn't seen him, like, well, since he was a teenager.
3: This is Mark Thompson speaking, James's friend. So am I right in thinking that he just ran out on the family?
2: Yeah. As James told it, the guy just legged it when he was a teenager. His mum died before I met him too. I think he was like 17 or 18 when that happened. It was definitely fresh when he got to uni.
3: Did James ever speak much about him, though? Um, I mean, he must have been pretty old when he had James, which makes it seem strange that he just, like, ran out on the family, right?
2: I guess. James wasn't much for talking about that stuff, though, no. He he had a word with me about it once, years ago. Said that he hated his dad, which is understandable. He said that he was a shifty kind of guy, you know? A bit of a liar or a cheat in some way. I, I got the impression that James was, like, scared of him somehow.
3: And what about when they found his father's plane? the bodies, did he ever talk to you about that?
2: Yeah, that. Uh, James was pretty shaken about that. Uh, I still don't really understand it, to be honest. But like, not being funny, what's this got to do with anything else?
3: North African deserts, a big place. Philip and Sean's one combat mission, if you can call it that, saw them fly across a hundred plus miles of it, drop a payload on an Italian occupied airstrip, then turn around and then crash in an indeterminate crest of sand, somewhere between the start and the end. Unlucky, right? So it's no real surprise that the plane wasn't found for several decades after the war. Most downed ones from that geographical part of World War II never were. The sand soon shifts and the wind buries them, or they disintegrate on impact into fiery smithereens. The Vickers Valentia was no different. It wasn't found until the late 1980s by a travelling photographer. The discovery made the news, and it did so for a pretty amazing reason. There were two bodies found there, not just one. The resulting images featured briefly in the media because of how the corpses were positioned. Both outside the plane. Two perfect skeletons sitting side by side. But nobody at the time focused on the one... Big discrepancy about that. Nobody focused on the fact that Sean Hollis was meant to be the only victim. Nobody, except Maggie, that is.
7: Okay. Uh, here we go. Uh, was it September sixteenth?
3: Yeah, 1609, 1941 mm,
7: Yeah. Well, here it is then. Uh, see. Uh, see there.
3: Let me see. This is James Shepherd, War Office curator at the National Archives. He's offered to help dig up the specific mission file in question. Uh,
7: so you, you don't get a massive amount of detail here. It is very basic, but look if you look here you can see the, uh, the date, the pilots, the objective, uh, all that kind of basic information.
3: Yeah, that's who we're after. Sean Hollis and Philip Logan.
7: Okay, so the target here was five Mackie C205s. Those
3: are planes, right?
7: Uh, yeah, they were Italian fighters, um, stationary here. Uh, so they were a natural target, really. This kind of thing happened a lot, thinning the herd with midnight bombing runs. And
3: um, what does it say that they're about the, the outcome?
7: Uh, essentially, that the plane never returned. There is, there is an additional note, if you see here, it's in a slightly different ink, which says that one of the pilots was recovered by someone from RAF 55 squadron.
3: OK, so here's um, here's a photo taken of the crash site in
7: 1988.
3: Uh, ah. Two bodies.
7: Yeah, two. That is strange.
3: So what do you make of that?
7: Um, well, I, I kind of think there's some sort of mistake here then, presumably. Uh, just kind of human error.
3: But this man, Philip Logan... He went on to live a full life back in the UK. Ah.
7: I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, um, without looking into this further, I don't really know what to make of it. A, then you, you know, it was a chaotic time and people obviously dying or going missing left and right. And, you know, records are only ever as good as people could make them. Uh, mistakes happen from time time. You do see that in the records, but um, that's all I can really think.
3: James told me he'd do a little digging and get back to me but that I shouldn't hold my breath. But it's weird, right? That survivor, the guy who was picked up by the neighbouring RAF squadron, seems to have been James's father, Philip Logan. He was apparently saved while wandering the desert, presumably barely alive, and from there, he found his way home to England. He married late in life, had James in 1972 at the relatively old age of 49, and lived on until the age of 80. He died in 2003 at St. Columbia's Hospice in Edinburgh from complications arising from pneumonia. Which really just bodes the question. Who the hell was the second body at the plane crash site?
1: Look.
3: As undeniably creepy as this is, you may be sitting there wondering why I'm getting wrapped up in events that took place six decades before James and Laura's death. And you may have a point. But the answer is, well, because all of this, the mission, the mystery, the lineage, all of it brings us back to one key theme. Obsession. In 2003, Maggie Hollis had burned through a good few years of her life obsessing over James Logan, his father, her father and if there was some grand cosmic conspiracy at play involving all three. Her interest in Laura Ray and her fee for keeping tabs on James in 2002 was neither here nor there. This was all about James. It was always about the Logans. And that's why she kept the tracker she'd placed above his front door in place and charged up for as long as she did. It was why she'd keep coming back to the house. And it's why we have this tape from November 2003, a full year after Maggie purports to have last seen James.
4: No, I'm not his mother. I am a friend, though. Have you seen him? Is he here? You tell him to cut those trees in his, please. I'm sorry? You tell him to cut, to cut those trees. They're into my garden now. They're a mess. You tell him that. I will when I see him, but I'm afraid I don't know where he is. Well, he was here this morning. Really? Yes,
5: yes, he was here. I saw him come in. He looked terrible. Stressed. Anyway, you tell him to cut those trees.
3: It's... An interesting bit of tape, to say the least, right? The recording misses the beginning of the conversation, but it sounds to my ears like Maggie outside James's house talking to his, sadly now deceased, neighbour. And it makes you wonder, is Maggie as crazy as she sounds? Or is she even crazier? It's time to find out. Next time on Unresolved... I'm finally going to get her side of what happened on October third, two
4: thousand and five. Coming up, what happened was that I hit Laura Ray with my car, and she died on impact.
2: And kind I of look at it from every angle. So yeah, it's feasible that I mean, that Laura wasn't completely blameless here. No, I, I don't. I don't see my sister being a killer.